Greetings, travelers. Greetings, travelers. Nocturnal November. Yes, I, I feel. I feel like since it's uh, you know the episode we're about to do, I think we need to do a deep nocturnal November. <laughs> that was impressive. We we need to get Mister Dick Tertroon to do a little thing for us. By the way, I'm Erica Lance. Oh yeah, and I'm Mark Muncie, and and this is Erie Travels, gang. So yes. uh, you notice we've kind of changed up the intro a little bit, uh, so that it's uh, yeah. Hey, we're just trying something different. Let us know. Yes. Well, that and our producer told us that everybody already knows who we are. I don't think everybody does, but pretty close. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so we are gonna do. Um, we've you know we went through um the haunted holidays. We're in nocturnal November at nocturnal November. Oh my god. Um. I oh can, wow. Wow. That that. By the way, I just time traveled back, which would be cool. And um, no. We are in the nocturnal new year, and we are going to talk about something fun today, though, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We are going to talk. We did this a while ago. I think we talked about where, you know, we did uh, the Cropsy episode. Oh, yes. And, you know, some things had come back, right? You know, there was urban legends, but they were based in reality, right? Yes. Uh, and so we had some requests for a few and some people know that back when I was doing Erie, Florida books, one of the first things I came upon was a legend in my area called Mini Lights, which is one of those St. Pete urban legends that won't go away. St. Petersburg was filled with urban legends and we were using them as the basis for my old haunted house, Hellview Cemetery. Yes, true. Um, Wait a minute. So... We just had Dr. Stamey on, and there was something before we get started that you needed to clarify about where Topas come from. Oh, yeah. This is, I felt really bad. Like five minutes after we stopped the episode, we were talking about Topas and, you know, the Jewish Tulpa that had killed a Nazi camp and all that. And um, it was a golem that did that, but it was a Tulpa like ritual to create it. And I was like, I completely forgot to mention that tulpas were of Buddhist origin, because that is one of the staples of Buddhism is, is the, the thinking of self is how you create yourself. Tulpas are, if a group thinks about something, they can create it, uh, or a very strong someone can you know create it. So uh, it is a blending of several religions and all that. And I forgot to mention it. And we got some notice, some emails, and I was like... <laughs> But I, I even, like I said, the minute we had hung up with him, I was like, oh, I forgot to do this. I forgot to mention that. There yeah. I am dating myself by saying hang up. Hang up. Yeah, I was not going <laughs> to mention that. One thing I will mention, though, is um, it passed, but I don't know if you know this, but January 14th was Thorablot, which celebrates Thor, the goddess of thunder. Oh, yeah. 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 Before we get into our episode, it's just weird stuff that comes up. Anyway, so for those of you who celebrate Thor, I have friends down in Florida that absolutely at their Viking camp, shout out to Stephanie and Mike, and their son is named after this, so go team. Um, but today, so we're going to talk about some urban legends that are, are, are based in reality, right? Like, and yeah. I think if we're going to cover the topics I believe we're going to cover a little bit of a trigger warning for people listening oh. to this episode. I know we do a lot of trigger warnings, but we've taken those away as part of our new thing. But this one really does because it goes over some stuff that it has a lot to do with racism and some very terrible things that happened in our history. As always, if you're listening to an episode on eerie travels, there may be some eerie stuff in it. <laughs> and then yeah. also some scary stuff and then some... and. Let's be honest, dark history is not a pleasant thing. We we have some very, very scary spots, and these are going to touch on all of those. So where are we beginning our journey here? Because I know we're going to end up in the Wayback Machine. Yep, yep. Well, we're going to go in the Wayback Machine, but not too far. Okay. We're going to go to 1994, okay? Oh, okay. So not too far back, and this was one of my emails to our old Hellview Cemetery email site. And it was from someone who said, I've seen many lights. Oh, wow. 
And it says, I was living by Crescent Lake. There was a porch and we had windows out over the porch with a little hedgerow. And I was looking from the kitchen and I saw something looking at me out of the corner of my eye. And it was bluish green, uh, maybe bald and small. And it ducked under the hedge and took off. And then wow. I got another letter a little while later of a lady who lived in Campbell Park, which is a little bit nicer area. She was very angry because the city was you know, tearing up the land in front of her. But she saw strange lights dancing about the construction site. When you and say lights, are they little teeny lights? Are they great? Like dancing lights, the way she described them. So I'm assuming little blinking like firefly lights and stuff. When I emailed her back about this, now remember this is 94. I was not a, a Fortean researcher or anything like that at that time. I was I was an enthusiast. I was still a writer and I was running a haunted house. And I also had the day yeah. job as a GameStop manager. There's horror in its own right. And the haunted house I was running at the time, Hellview Cemetery, we had the, the email box that said, hey, send us your, your legends, send us your local lore and legends. And uh -huh. that's what we were trying to base the haunted house on. And I would get a couple, if you say this thing three times, they will come get you. And it was oh. many lights. If you say many lights, many lights come out three times in a row, little green creatures would come get you after dark. Like goblins or aliens or like? Alligator men. What? Wait, yes. what? Hold on. Little green, uh, first of all, and anybody who looks at the news in regards to alligators in Florida, there has been a resurgence of alligators getting people. But oh. little alligator men coming out with, oh, I don't like any of that. Now, when I started researching it, because I wanted to get the story, because it was so funny, because the north side of town, which is north of Central Avenue, which is the tourist side of town and, and the the where all the rich people live, or the middle class anyway. The story was, if you say many lights three times in the mirror, these lights would appear and chase okay. you. There was never seemed to be anything more serious than that. Just and like I immediately go, well, three times, that's Bloody Mary. That's mocking the Trinity. You know, yeah. saying it in a mirror. That was very much Bloody Mary's version. And I started realizing that this was pretty much the Gen X version of this story. Okay. So, because as I was looking into it, there were older versions that go back all the way to the 40s of this. So, we're so taking, we are going in the way back machine. So we're going in the way back machine a little bit further back. I talked to one man that said, oh, I, I saw him. I saw him. They were little creatures that came out of the sewer when I oh. said the words. So, and they were little green men, literally alligator men. You know, he's like, but I never told anybody about it until you asked me. I didn't, I didn't want to tell anybody about it because I didn't think anybody believed me. And now you get down to the middle of St. Petersburg. There's this area called Booker Creek. And what I found is that's like the dividing line of this legend. Okay. Now, um, and Booker Creek goes through an area called Roser Park, which okay. is the very fancy area right next to downtown. And Roser Park has a great history. It was named by Charles Roser. He was the guy who invented the Fig Newton. And oh, the Fig so Newton. He had taken adventure. his money, sold it, sold it to Nestle, took his money down here, bought a bunch of land in St. Pete. And all the big names, Demons and a few others, which I always love that there's a place called Demons Landing in St. Pete. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they had all bought these beautiful blocks. And then he had to buy the land along the Booker Creek. So what I was hearing from these older stories was don't go to Booker Creek. Don't go to Rosa Park because many lights will get you. And I'm like, already this is changing a little bit, right? It's not just little green lights dancing about and chasing you. Now it's the little green men are getting you, the oh, alligator. Wow. And then you go to the south side. You know, that's the area where the riots were happening at the time of, that just happened at the time of this and all that. So it is a much more urban area and also, you know, a lot of poverty in that area. And so when I was over there and I'd ask about this, you know, this legend, I'd say, what do you guys know about mini lights? They go, you know, I don't say this often, but they would go, quote, don't go fucking with mini lights. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, things are different here. Uh, you know, it, it has escalated quickly. 
and they go mini lights and her gator boys they'll get you they'll get her oh i just got chills and her gator boys her gator boys so i'm like what is this and finally an older guy he was about 66 at the time came up to me his name was dominic and he said heard you've been asking about mini lights it's like yep yeah i have he's like her real name is mini lightning and she is the voodoo queen of St. Petersburg. Oh. She controls the weather. She hates Marie Laveau up in New Orleans. Well, so that's an interesting The hurricane part. from Tampa Bay over to New Orleans. Okay. That's why they all curve that way. That's why Tampa Bay never gets hit directly by a hurricane. Except it has a couple times. So maybe, but yeah. that was maybe after her time. I'm like, wow. And then she's like, and then if you're not careful, if you pissed her off, or Gator Boys will come and they'll steal your children. So that's different. So it's different than you'll get attacked or you'll get chased. Now, unfortunately, and I know this is where some of the trigger warning comes into play, they'll take your children? Yep. So I asked this guy how he knew this legend. And he's like, all right, well, when we were boys, there was a lady who lived just off south of Roser Park. And he pointed out this boarding house. And he says, we knew that's where many lights lived. That's where many lightning lived. And there was... There was an old lady there, and we knew she was mini lightning. And then at the church one day, the pastor's daughter disappeared, and they knew mini lightning had taken her. Oh my so gosh. He and a few of the boys, his, his friends, went to the lady's house and they started throwing rocks at her house, saying, All right, mini lights, we know you're in there. Mini lightning, bring out the preacher's daughter. We know you took her. And I was like, Well, did did anything happen? And he's like, well, we did see dancing lights. And I said, oh, and you had to run? He's like, yeah, because it was the police. (laughs) (laughs) That's different. But as the police were showing up, this old lady came out on the porch and she said, mini lightning don't live here. Get out of here. And the next day, the preacher's daughter showed back up. She had just run away for a couple of days. So they felt bad about it. So they spent the rest of their summer saving up money to replace the windows that they had busted on the old lady's house. Oh, wow. And when they went and gave her the money at the end of the summer, she says, that was a good thing you boys did, you know, bringing me the money for this. But I know the real mini lightning. And if you don't go away, I will send her gator boys to get you. Oh, I don't like this. Yeah. Now another person is controlling mini lightning and her gator boys. Well, she knows her. So, oh, so she's gonna like now house because I was gonna say call her up, but this is before. Yeah. Now I had also heard a legend where there was a boarding house in our area that would be in about that same area of Roser Park, and it was run by a Mennonite. Oh, many lights Mennonite. Yeah, yeah. This is where I start. This is my early days of research, right? So I'm just starting to get into this, and I was like, ah. And then this boarding house allowed circus folk from like Gibsonton and other things. Now, this was Tampa Bay was not quite the hotbed that Sarasota, a little south of the bay was, where (laughs) all the circuses wintered down there thanks to Ringling. And then so if you wanted to be a circus act, you came to Florida in the off season, hoping that Ringling would hire you for the big circus. If that didn't work, you might, you'll at least get work at one of the other circuses that came down here that that all formed in this area. It was like Silicon Valley for circus sideshows here and stuff. So that's why you think about that by itself. Yep. So Gibsonton was the circus home and that's where all the sideshow folks are. There's a couple of TV, the whole American horror story, a a sideshow season. Yeah. Fictional Gibsonton. Freak show. One of my favorites. Right. And so that's one of those things. If this is, What's going on? This is, you know, th- maybe it was a lady there, a Mennonite, who had a boarding house and had little gator boys, some guys with, you know, green scaly skin or something. And I thought that was the original. I was like, I've solved it. Right. That's what's happened because I read about this lady's house where people would come to it and throw rocks at it. And it would, and the little guys would, little dwarves would come out with sticks and chase, you know, chase the people away. Because they were tired of being pissed off by the townsfolk. And, and that, that makes place... sense that it would be circus performance. Because a lot of people that had a, 
I would say a different look than some people would right. end up in the circus because it was safer for them to have people that, yeah, not that it was always an employment, but yeah. yeah. And employment, this is, you remember, great, post-Great Depression here for most of this. So I thought I'd solve the, the mystery. This lady's house burned down. That explains this, and that's the legend. Done. And then I was researching freak. So even when I did Erie, Florida, years later, I put that as my definition of it in the book, because I was like, yep, solved it. But I realized I hadn't dug deep enough. Because the real answer came to me while I was researching Freaky Florida. Uh, I was opening another book of postcards. I was looking for postcards for um, pictures for the book. While I was looking at the postcards, one's right there. And I'm like, ooh, that looks pretty cool. But a fan fell out into my lap. One of those tourist fans that you... Okay. Oh, good. Because it's hot your... in Florida before air conditioning. You'd need a fan. Yeah, you'd stand out there at a tourist attraction... And this was in uh, the 1930s. It's the state of Florida, land of gators. And it was the St. Petersburg alligator farm. And on it had two small African-American kids being chased by alligators. And it said gator bait uh, on it. No. And then many lights, suddenly I realized what the story was. And I did a little more digging. And sure enough, it made sense. What basically happened was the community invented this legend to deal with the trauma of what really happened. Wow. But all the way up into the 1930s was just terrifying. Yeah. That, uh, that what they did was they would send men out into the south side of town, which is why it was so much more prevalent on the south side. And they would kidnap children that were running around free at night. And they would say, hey, let's throw them in the alligator pit to entertain tourists. Because alligators, for those of us who really know alligators, alligators don't move a lot. They just sit there. They don't care unless it's feeding time. If you put something kind of small in their area, they are going to go for it. Now, they will go for people and all that, but not common but if you put a small child in an alligator pit it's going to chase him oh. and this was to entertain tourists and so as it was boosting tourism to the tampa bay area yo and you could also buy gator meat gator hide all any gator souvenir you ever wanted in this area right they had to do something out of their way and so then i found after i found the fan i found a postcard that advertised it and it's basically, there was no mini lights. It was instead of beware of mini lights, her gator boys will get you. It was beware of the men with lights, the gator boys, they will get you. Oh so, God, this is such a horrible part of history. Yes. I hate all of this. Where they would wait was down Brooker Creek because that's where kids were coming to get water. And oh. that was the only freshwater source in the area. And they'd wait along the creek, grab a kid, never be seen again. And then they could blame it on the gators. This is disgusting. Just, now, like I said, this is folklore. We don't have 100% proof that this is what happened, but we do have proof that they did put black children and, and sometimes white kids and Hispanic kids. Well, just the, poor children. Where, poor children. Whatever yeah. they would be missed. Well, and they, 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 they could always say, oh, some gator got them down at Booker Creek you know, or something got them. So there was it was plausible deniability, and that's why no one ever went to jail for this. No crimes were ever committed. Thankfully, that alligator farm disappeared, and all that. It's oh just yeah, no terrifying. So no, it's terrifying. And what's but what's I will say when you look at how folk legends get started sometimes, and this is something that you talk about a lot and go into your books, is that a lot of times there's very real situations that parents, people then turn into almost a fantastical story. Right. Because if you go, hey, children, you need to hide from little gator men who will come get you. It's 
almost scarier than trying to explain how real people do something like that's one of the things is that you know humans are much more terrifying and much worse than 99 of all of the things that we talk about you know yeah. and there is some repercussions to this like i said race relations in saint pete have never been on their best but lake majori that lake is filled with alligators and we think they are the descendants of the alligators from that alligator farm. Wow. Which is pretty crazy to me. I mean, alligators come from everywhere, you know, and, and they tend to, oh, there's some big gator just moved into my pond. I'm going to go across the road and go find another one. <laughs> and so that may be part of why Lake Majori has a million alligators. Now, many lights, I know the Vitali brothers, they do amazing murals all over St. Pete. They were going to try to do an independent film based on it. And they started collecting all the stories and they reached out to me. And that was right when we were finding out the truth about this. And I think that totally changed the, because originally it was going to be a Blair Witch voodoo thing. And then it turned into, oh, we've got a real serious subject here. And um, I'll have to reach back out to them and see whatever happened to that film. Because I don't think I ever saw it. I mean, that's a very different film to make. It's, you know, one thing to make something about a, a voodoo witch who controls the weather, which, by the way, mad props to any voodoo witch that controls the weather. Oh, yeah, but yeah. It's different when you're talking about the death of a ton of children. Yeah, and it's and it's funny how uh, not funny, but I'm just it is it's funny to me how the legend changed so much depending on what part of town you were in. Yeah, and then what happened with this is I actually followed up. There's a place up in Port Ritchie called Brooker Creek which is a Boy Scout camp. And I'd heard the legend was up there and that the Gator Boys and maybe even a giant troll lived under a bridge in Brooker Creek. And I was like, where did this come from? And that's when I started realizing how much folklore migrates because Booker Creek, Brooker, Brooker Creek, I thought maybe that was the reason, but no, it had nothing to do with that. It was the fact that there was a Boy Scout camp there. So some kids from St. Pete go up to the Brooker Creek Preserve for their Boy Scout camp, and they're telling this ghost story about this thing that steals steals you if you say it three times in the mirror. Are you going to say, and it took place 30 miles downtown? No, you say, and it took place right here. Yeah, so that's when you start realizing that these tales move. So that also throws off guys looking into this stuff, looking into the history of these urban legends and where they come from and all that, because... I had heard originally it was up there, then it was wow. down here, then it was is is all over the place. Wow, that's a lot of red herrings. But, um, a lot of red herrings. That is a terrible part of history and scary, and I I don't like that. But um, uh, no, and it was I, yeah late eight yeah late nineteenth century into early twentieth century. That's we like to think that we were much more civilized, but we were not. So. No, no, we were not, and um. With that, I think we need to take a little break, a cleansing break. So yes, I think we do. We... We've got another one, and this one's much more famous that we're going to do. Oh in. wow! Well, let's take a break here from our sponsors, do a little cleansing, and come back. Prepare to be devoured. The Wolves of Wharton is a six-part complete book series by Erie Travels producer, Bo Lake. It has been called dark and visceral, steamy, dramatic, and a fresh take on the werewolf mythos. If you like action, adventure, a large serving of body horror, and some steamy relations, the Wolves of Wharton series is for you. Pick it up wherever books are sold or at linktree.com slash bow underscore underscore lake. Most know Florida as the land of endless sunny beaches, but the state is home to numerous eerie legends and mysterious creatures. The Everglades is home to the elusive skunk ape. In Key West lies an uncanny doll reputed to have a life of its own. Join Mark Muncy and illustrator Carrie Schultz as they uncover the history behind the state's creepiest stories and unusual locations. The Dark Side of the Sunshine State presented in Eerie Florida from History Press. 
we're, and we're back. back. So okay? I, I am. I I hate all of that. I think it's fascinating where the legend morphed and where it changed and what people started to believe. But like a lot of things, um, you know, when I, I, like I say, I don't enjoy true crime. I, I'm fascinated by it and I watch it and I read about it and stuff because what humans do to each other is interesting. I just don't, I don't love the true history of that. And I'm glad that that place doesn't exist anymore. It sucks that people weren't brought to justice for doing that, but I hope karma got any of those people that were a part of it. Not that we know who they were, but I hope karma was a real bitch to them. But yes. we're going to go to another legend where people and say now, three times, right? Yeah, or five times, depending on which version you're going okay. by. Um, we're going to way back machine to 1992. Okay. So, similar time frame here. There was this amazing movie called Candyman. Oh, I love Candyman. Yeah. Love that movie. Supernatural killer that haunts the projects of Chicago. What is the basis for this killer for anyone who doesn't know? First of all, travelers, you can always travel to St. Pete. You can go oh, see yeah. and stuff. I but um and no the St. Longer... Pete History Museum is where they have the uh the the fan and the postcard for the alligator farm on exhibit in their little section that is on local history it's so funny the st pete history museum gets so much stuff from people who everybody goes to florida to retire and a lot of people uh, I, they used to joke about st pete is god's waiting room because people go there to die uh and they get a lot of collections donated to them so this museum has tons of stuff from all over the world so they do exhibits not just on st pete history but on everything because oh, they wow. get so many amazing things that are donated to the museum after somebody's estate, you know, passes. St. Yeah. Pete is really up and coming now, though. They've done a yeah. whole, like, the, just the, the whole town is revitalized. Of, yeah, revitalized. And and even, even the, you know, the, the problem is, is they're pricing a lot of people out of the city, including me. It's why I moved away. But, <laughs> but, uh, but back to Candyman. Sorry, sorry. Now, there are differences because some people have seen the new versions and some people have seen the things and there's this amazing stuff done the new film that the 2021 Candyman basically instead of focusing on the original figure tells another more modern legend and I thought that was cool that they always focused on folklore in yeah. these movies and how it morphs and how it changes and how there's different generations of Candyman and all that. Now the original movie, it was this 1890s character and um, I cannot remember. I know his name was Daniel Robitalli, but he's played by Tony Todd. That's all yeah. that you need to know. And Robitalli was basically a painter in the 1800s who was the son of a slave and he became wealthy after inventing a machine to mass-produce shoes during the Civil War. And so he went to the finest schools and all this stuff. So that's how he became sophisticated, polite, and he did portraits. And then he was hired by a wealthy white landowner to paint his young daughter. They fell in love. And sadly, they had a child out of wedlock. And when the father discovered the affair, he hired a lynch mob to chase the boy in Chicago where they sawed off his hand with a rusty blade, smeared him with honey, caused him to be stung to death. And because, you know, where a young boy tasted honey, they called him candy man and they hanged him and burned his body. It's, I mean, it's terrifying. And of course, after his death, the legend arose in the area called the Cabrini green, which is actually a real place where if you say his name five times in the mirror and then turned out the lights immediately, that's the part everybody forgets. You can say his name five times and just walk away. Don't, but if you turn out the lights immediately, he appears behind you and he would murder both you and any witnesses. Well, uh, I don't that's, know any of that. Right. Now, the real story behind this guy, the the reason this lady, this lady in the movie discovers this legend, she's 
a reporter. She's covering the projects in that area. And she's looking into a murder that happened. And they go into the projects and they find that there was this hole behind her medicine cabinet that led into another apartment. And in that other apartment is where she had been dragged and murdered. And there was a whole altar to Candyman in there and all that. And so that's the movie. Spoilers. Sorry. You know, it's a 30-year-old movie. I'm allowed to talk about it. So, it's so uh, funny because you keep doing 30-year-old movies and then going, spoiler alert. And I'm like, the movie is 30 years old. And yeah. it doesn't ruin it. Even though you're saying that, it doesn't take away from... It doesn't take away anything from that movie. Believe me, I've yeah. just that's just the basic synopsis. That's why I enjoy the movie, gang. Now, true crime aficionados know the real story that inspired this. So Erica, as a true crime aficionado, do you, do you know the story of Ruthie McCoy? I, you know what? No, I actually have to say, and uh, now you're making me sound like I'm not a true crime. Oh, no, you are. You were just, you're, you're a fan, but you are not in this one. So that's fine. Not I, in this I don't one. know every ghost or monster legend. I know a lot of them, but I don't know every one. How so, dare that's... you call me out, Mark? No, just kidding. So no, I'm fascinated because Candyman was one of those movies, the way it was done was amazing, but it was very terrifying, right? Because oh, yeah. it was based in a folklore um, situation. So a very real situations. So this was, uh, so Ruthie May McCoy, whose okay. story I think needs to be told more. People should know this as much as they know Candyman. Okay. She was a young black woman growing up on Chicago's South Side. And she started developing mental illness Okay. Uh, in her 20s. And there was basically universal consensus amongst doctors. She's got a problem. She was just, you know, schizophrenia, we would call it now. But uh, a residual type schizophrenia, I think, was the official diagnosis. But that's much later, sadly, yeah. after she's passed. But she was very paranoid. You know, she would talk to herself cursed strangers on the street suddenly behave unpredictably and she just you know had these symptoms in the past but she was you know you never knew when they were going to come and that's okay. why it was one of those she could never hold a job longer than a couple months she was institutionalized a few times throughout her life and basically in 1983 was a way back machine just about wow. 10 years prior to the movie she found herself living in ABLA homes, which is public housing, which is coincidentally pretty close to Cabrini Green, which was the setting oh, wow. for Candyman. There's evidence saying she was getting away from that area. She okay. didn't like that area. It was a dangerous area. Police did not like going to this area of Chicago. It was falling apart. And it was basically gangs and drugs and everything you can imagine was going on there it was the projects this is the you know this is where we put away all those that couldn't afford to live in the fancy parts of chicago again the wrong side of town and what happened is just before in 1987 she got a check okay this was a check that was because they had approved her social security disability and it okay. was retroactive to the time she first applied. So she Which, got $2,000 or more in 1983 money, which, and in that part of town, not exorbitant, but that's a nice sum. And yeah. he was going to use that to get out of the public housing and go somewhere nice, right? Where she could live safer. And she didn't do anything extravagant, but she did buy some new clothes and some household items. Okay. Guess what? That gets noticed. And we don't know who targeted her, but they assume she had money, of course, right? Yeah. On April 22nd, 1987, Chicago PD gets a 911 call. And the frantic call is confusing the dispatcher. I have heard the recording of this. And she says that people threw the cabinet down. They're coming in the bathroom and, you know, the dispatcher is trying to figure out what, what someone's coming out of your medicine cabinet. This doesn't make sense. You know, are you, are you, are you okay? 
and he didn't make the connection that she's being attacked that she's oh, like wow. they're coming for me they're coming out of the wall they're coming out of the the medicine cabinet send help and she screams and then the call's disconnected oh, so wow. he sends the police but he lists it as a disturbance not a break-in so when the police get there they knock on the door. There's basically no lack. There's no urgency in any of this. And they even got a couple more 911 calls of shots fired and shouting. But when they off, they knock on the door and no one answers. So they oh. have to go find the, the ABLA homes management person to unlock her apartment. And for some reason, we don't know. It's not documented or anything. The key didn't fit the lock, his master key, couldn't open it. Oh, wow. You think nowadays, right? You get this frantic phone call. There's no answer at the door. What would we do? Um, we would break the door down, I would think. Exactly. We have reasonable doubt. Let's break the door down. Let's do a wellness check at yeah. the very least. But nothing happens. The police go home. They say, oh, obviously, whatever disturbance is not, there's nobody here. So the next oh. evening... They get another call from one of her neighbors and they say that this woman always, you know, McCoy always you know, greeted her in the morning, always greeted her in the afternoon, but she hasn't seen her since yesterday. And so police officers return again. They knock on the door for a wellness check. They just leave. I don't like that. Yeah, that neighbor calls again. She's really upset because the cops just don't come back this time. So finally yeah. she contacts the management office and then the office finally gets a couple people to break the door open. Which they and should when have break done the door open, When they break the door open, they found her in her bedroom. She had been shot multiple times, full of blood. The room had been ransacked. And because it had been a couple days, she had started to uh, decompose. Okay. Yeah. So it was very foul smell, all this. What they did was they, you know, they didn't even uh, cover it, right? Nobody cares. This mentally ill woman, you know, black woman in uh, Chicago was shot. The only reason that this case made the Chicago Tribune was the fact that the detectives learned the killers entered her home from the adjacent apartment because they had were able to break through the medicine cabinet. Oh because my God. Is one medicine cabinet butted up against the medicine cabinet in the other room. So all I have to do is take that one off and you can push the other one out. Wow. Was this crime ever solved? No, sadly, no. No one knows who killed Ruthie McCoy. Now the mode of entry there would have you know, shocked readers in Chicago. Oh my God. But people in the apartment complex knew people were living in the walls and coming through the walls because some of the apartments had tunnels so that maintenance men could get in and fix things and not yeah. have to bother people. So this was another reason that people... Now, there were two men arrested for the break-in and burglary and murder, but they were found not guilty because there wasn't enough evidence against them. Now, Ruthie McCoy's case probably would have disappeared if not for the Candyman movie. Yeah. And then the bathroom mirror is like one of the most famous things. You know, you say the, the name five times. Well, that's the real case comes out. That's so, terrifying for the record. Absolutely yep. terrifying. Now we go back to our movie versions, right? Yeah. And there was sequel movies to Candyman. Some not as good, some as good. None exceed that first one, though. No. But some of the stories they tell also tell of original, true folklore and stuff. So one of the the new movie version, they do shadow puppetry and showing the original story of Candyman. It's very well done, very eloquent. But then they also showed some of the other manifestations of Candyman uh, between... The new one, whose name is Anthony McCoy yeah. and Daniel Robitale. And so one is a candy man who is a young boy 
who is wrongly accused of assaulting a white woman and thrown in prison, and he's killed in the electric chair, and he becomes this electric candy man. Now, there's just a quick thing in the movie, but what was cool about that is that's also based on a real story. Oh. What's not cool is it's, you know, another bit of racist history of our wonderful country that is basically telling the tale of George Stinney, who is a 14-year-old boy who is the youngest person ever to die in the electric chair in 1944. He was accused of murdering two young white girls. He was jailed, and he subsequently confessed after the police basically starved and bribed him. Oh, wow. And then, of course, because of that confession, he was convicted by an all-white jury and sentenced to death. You know, that's also, there's another young boy that it could be, was a, a young boy named Emmett Till, who was a 14-year-old boy who was also accused of harassing a white woman, and he was beaten and lynched by men in his town. Oh, God. And then we get the next new iteration, and he's from the 70s, and that was a resident of the Cabrini Green named Sherman Fields, who was wrongly murdered by police. And he was known as the Candyman because he carried candies to give to the children. The larger community believed he was the one who put razor blades in the candies. Hey, we talked about this in our satanic panic and, and oh, all, the, yeah. all the rumors of Halloween and stuff. And they basically chased him because they uh, a young white girl found a razor in her candies. She saw him on the wall of a Cabrini Green laundromat and screaming. And the police are alerted outside. And then they fought and they beat him to death. But that one is just made up. Also, the lady from the first movie becomes a candy man. And that one's just not nearly as good. And there, there were others. I believe there's one guy who accepts a ride from three white supremacists who beat him and spray paint him and, you know, before dragging him onto their pickup. Again, this is all based on real things that happened. They blow him up for the movies but they are real history. Uh, sadly, we don't know that man's name Aww. that they murdered. But, you know, we end with the new guy who's now doing it. He's the new Candyman in the movie, and I'll save that one for those that watch the movie. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you talk about what happened, like, police work and stuff like that, and, and it hasn't, you know, it's terrible is it hasn't necessarily gotten that much better in some places. Police are amazing and they serve and protect us. I think um, there's not nearly the backup of police officers that needs to be for situations that are not serve and protect their mental health and things like that. Luckily, some communities are doing it, but like, you know, there are a lot of injustices that have happened in the past when it comes to confessions. Cause like, let's wrap this up. He's obviously guilty. There's no, you know, yeah. innocent till proven guilty. Let's do everything we can. And what, you know, I have to say it's interesting cause it just coincides with this is I was watching a documentary on Netflix that recently came out. I think it was Netflix about this Indian woman who with cyanide poisoned like seven people and it took them for a while to catch her. But one of the things that um, was talked about that blew me away and I had to look it up was even if somebody confesses, they cannot use the confession in court. Right. They have to go get the evidence that the person dis discusses in the confession. They can mention it, but it cannot be used to convict her. It's not considered reliable evidence. And I thought, what an interesting situation. And it's a whole other topic, but what if you couldn't take the confessions to court because a lot of people get convicted on confessions. That's actually, we think the confession means we're never going to have to go to court because we got the confession. But then we realize some of these confessions are obtained under such duress and stuff like that, that it's like, okay, yeah, now we do have to go to court. Uh, and that's why we have all those cases where they're like, well, they threw out the confession and it sounds like, well, that's stupid. But yeah, there may be reasons we threw out the confession. Somebody got it illegally somebody got it by forcing it and the, the, the reason why kids aren't allowed to you know confess without a parent in the room or something because 
you know, they can be easily coerced and a lot of people can be easily coerced. And no, it's true. Hey, another documentary making a monster um, yep. on Netflix where it talks about a mentally, you know, one of the confessions was from somebody who was mentally ill. So yeah. how reliable are they? But these stories, it's interesting. And it's kind of like the Bloody Mary, these stories where you say then the name yeah. in the mirror or just say the name and you call forth these people and you got to kind of wonder if putting that intention there is a creation of any issues you know the the bloody mary thing the candy man thing and beetlejuice you oh, call it three times you know? you know and and many lights having these different variations going back to the first half yeah is the same thing with Candyman. Candyman has different variations because it's different eras and they tell the same story but they modify it for their era and that's many lights. They, they, they have different areas of the city modified it and also different eras of history modified it. And I love, that's one of the things in the new movie that I really love, the 2021 one. I say new, it's two years old now. Uh, but to me, that's new. He has this one line where Handy, Candyman is a whole damn hive saying that oh. it's different. You know, there's just these different aspects of aggravation of, of, of history that have, you know, messed with them. And it's, it's you know definitely more against you know say my name, Candyman you know that that they be my victim, uh, yeah. those, those great lines and stuff, but that's because it's you know it changes. I mean in that the first one he's stalking black victims, yeah. Why is he stalking black victims if he's you know trying to save society? No, it's just it was the way the legend was at the time because that's who was the victim, and now yeah. you know let's let's get back at the you know the guys who oppressed us so i love how it changes the narrative changes the folklore changes but that's why it is so difficult when we do these researches and deep dives into this stuff you find the trail is a bunny trail it goes you go six directions one way and then have to go back a couple more because you missed a turn so yeah no absolutely absolutely well this has been um interesting but horrific at the same time yeah. because of where this all came from and that i hope one day somebody takes the mantle and solves her murder it would be great like i said they did have two pretty solid leads but uh we can't prove they did it so there's you know that's that again it could have been anyone because that's just the nature of that area but thankfully those areas are supposedly better now where they don't have those adjoining medicine cabinets but we don't know so that's no. yeah um and the the cabrini green is still there that's why they filmed the new movie there it's been renovated but you know has it and the abla housing is still there oh so, well um, hopefully things but, can continue to get better yeah for ruthie and george Stinney and emmett till and all these unjust histories i hope that the legends at least are living on and so you guys are living on a little bit as well and that we'd never forget and let me just put it this way that we absolutely never need to forget and we never need to repeat these horrific histories and mm -hmm. i one thing i can hope is like i said earlier that the people that did these terrible things had karma beat the shit out of them and that they're <laughs> stuck being a lamp in a terrible shop somewhere. Yeah. That is my wish. Very much, very much. Uh, uh, the very least, we hope karma came back to bite them uh, a thousandfold. Or, or maybe they said the wrong thing in the mirror three times and aren't coming back. One can hope. One can hope. Well, with that, folks, I will say our travels for today is you can go to this wonderful restaurant in St. Petersburg called Sesh. Now, Sesh was the former home of a melting pot uh, restaurant for a long time. That's what most St. Petersburg people say is the old melting pot. But before that, it was a wood carving tourist attraction, not too far from the St. Petersburg alligator farm. But Sesh has embraced their haunted history and has knows that they have ghosts there. So you can order these spirit themed cocktails. Uh, the paintings on the walls are all Beetlejuice and Ghostbusters and other things like that. They have an Annabelle hanging above the bar. Uh, uh, they have 
Cthulhu tentacles coming all around the fireplace. It's amazing. But if you go into the bathroom, there are mirrors. And there is stuff painted behind you on the wall that if you read it three times, it'll remind you of something very, very similar to one of these movies. And the fact that it's right near many lights makes it a double visit. Highly recommend going there and having one of their wonderful drinks or having one of their amazing sandwiches. Uh, they do have appetizers for apparitions. They call them apparitions. I love it. It's it's great stuff. So t totally fun, amazing food, amazing place, and lots of horror theming. And look for the three haunted mirrors behind the bar, which is where the ghosts are trapped. Also, you can go to Cabrini Green, which is where Candyman takes place. But I would recommend only going there for a quick visit and stay outside because it is still housing and you don't want to bother people who live there. So. Yeah, no, don't 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 try to go to that exact place. But hey, Chicago's a cool place to visit. Yeah, exactly. Go and, see the bean. <laughs> and with that, gang, I think that's the end of this wonderful journey into folklore and reality. I want to thank you all for listening as always. And as always, please let, invite your friends. Let them know that we're doing these spooky things. We'd love to have more listeners. And we have listener tales episodes ahead. We've got listener questions episodes ahead. We've got so much ahead for you all that we just can't wait. We're enjoying this new nocturnal new year already. And I think with that, gang, we're going to say, go into your bathroom, look in that mirror, get a good, strong stare at yourself. And if you have the guts, you might want to say something three times and turn out that light immediately. But if you don't, it's okay, because we'll see you on the other side.